called Song of Solomon, Here Comes the Bride, and this is part two. The Jews have always revered this little book in your Bible, and they still read it every year during the Passover. And the reason is because it actually paints a picture of an engagement, a wedding, and a marriage. For them, Israel was engaged to Jehovah on that night of the Passover when he delivered them. He chose them and delivered them from Egypt. And then Israel was married to Jehovah when they made a covenant together. You know it as the Ten Commandments on top of Mount Sinai. And that's why the Jews in particular, they understood Song of Solomon to be an allegory uh, of the love that exists between Jehovah God and the nation of Israel. And this is also why Christians in the New Testament, we understand it on an even deeper level. This is a beautiful allegory of the love that exists between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. Now, because this book is Eastern, Eastern poetry, ancient Eastern poetry, it does some strange things to our Western mind. It kind of flows back and forth between various speakers and it shifts uh, seamlessly from scene to scene and there's not much of a definite storyline here that you can immediately discern. You have to study a little bit. The poetry even circles back on itself two or three times, and uh, there's dream sequences here that are out of sync with everything else, and the themes are developed by repetition, and, and key moments and key phrases will be repeated. But even so, even despite those difficulties, most scholars have come to a, a basic outline of the book that they can agree on. It's three sections describe the bride and the bridegroom in their engagement, in their wedding, and in their marriage. And those sections are separated by two haunting dreams that are experienced by the bride. She fears that her beloved has left her. And so those dreams, they kind of transition and almost interrupt, we would think, the flow of the book. So taken as a whole, this book is a beautiful portrait of what happens when an earthly couple joins together in marriage. We leave, we cleave, and then we weave. We leave our family of origin, we cleave one to another as husband and wife, and then we weave a new relationship together for the rest of our lives. Now we ended, it was close to the end last week, we ended last week's lesson with this beautiful verse from the last chapter of Song of Solomon, and I didn't expect it to hit quite as uh, beautifully as it did, but it sure did. And this is our prayer as we begin our study again tonight. Thou that dwellest in the gardens, you remember this? The companions here hearken to thy voice, cause me to hear it. Now that's a beautiful prayer to the king. And that's my prayer for us tonight, that we would hear the voice of God and hearken to the voice of God. And, and that needs to be your personal prayer. God, other people hear from you. Other people hear your voice. Other people see you move. Other people see you do the supernatural. And so, God, I want that. I'm hungry for that. I have a desire for that. Cause me to hear it. Um, as we discussed last week, the closest we get to the Garden of Eden, anywhere outside of the book of Genesis, is this little book called Song of Solomon. A man and a woman gazing upon each other in a beautiful garden. They are naked and unashamed in their intimate relationship. It's the Garden of Eden all over again. But there are two settings in Song of Solomon. There's a garden and there's the city of Jerusalem. Just as the Bible draws a direct line from the Garden of Eden in the beginning to the new Jerusalem at the far end of Scripture. So whether we're talking about Song of Solomon, the book, or whether we're talking about the Bible as a whole, this love story tells us of the bridegroom's delight in taking his bride from the earthly garden to the heavenly city. Anybody see where that could go? It's beautiful. And Paul, he quotes the creation account. Uh, he quotes Genesis 2.24 in his writing. And then immediately after he quotes that verse, he makes a connection between human marriage and the relationship between Christ and his church. And we should do no less in studying the Song of Solomon. For this cause, 
shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. And then he says, this human marriage, this intimate relationship, this is a great mystery, but don't miss the point. I speak concerning Christ and the church. The same thing's happening in Song of Solomon. It is a human love story. It is a tale of romance. It is an engagement and a wedding and a marriage. It is all of that. In fact, it is filled with intimacy, but it's a picture. It's concerning Christ and the church. Now, we started last week uh, in a good place. We started with chapter 1, verse 1, and that's basically just the title of the book. All it says is the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And then immediately in verse 2, with very little explanation of who she is or where she's from, the Shulamite girl, who we will come to know as the bride, she simply launches into joyful expressions of desire for her beloved. She doesn't give us any warning at all. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. You never thought a Bible book started that way. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. All the young maidens in Jerusalem are in love with you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Everyone loves you. But she's saying, but I love you the most. Throughout the book, she will, this is amazing and amusing to me. She will jump back and forth in describing the, the, the stages of their relationship. Uh, she will breathlessly recount those early days of their courtship. She will blushingly recall the intimacy of their wedding night. And she will beautifully recollect the joys of their marriage. But she does it in no logical sequence that anybody can discern. These are random expressions of the heart. They're fleeting memories, like leafing through a photo album that's not been put in any kind of chronological order. And this is not a chronological history of their relationship. And not only does she move kind of back and forth uh, through time, uh, this Shulamite girl, she also moves seamlessly without any warning whatsoever from dreams to reality. Anybody ever know a person like that? She moves from ecstatically happy to depressingly lonely. She will transition in a flash from agonizingly anxious to overwhelmingly excited. She jumps from thought to thought, from scene to scene, and from subject to subject. And I will wisely leave it up to each one of you to decide whether this is mostly a Hebrew literary poetic device or if this is simply the typical way we would expect an excited female to express herself. I'll let you decide that tonight. Sometimes the Shulamite girl talks to her beloved. Sometimes she talks to herself. Sometimes she talks out loud to no one in particular. And sometimes she converses with her friends, who in this book are called the Daughters of Jerusalem. This group is referred to seven times in this book, and they are quite obviously the young unmarried women who live in Jerusalem. But even more specifically, they're probably the female servants in the royal palace of Solomon. That's why they see so much and interact so much and know so much and why they get so excited with her. Sometimes they converse with her. Sometimes it appears that they're off somewhere else discussing her and King Solomon among themselves. And always we get the impression throughout this little book that their running commentary is directed to anyone within earshot. If this book were a Broadway play, the daughters of Jerusalem are the background chorus. If this book was a church service, the daughters of Jerusalem are the gossips in the church lobby. That's basically how it works. 
And there is lots to be excited about and lots to talk about because love is being discussed. And along the way, this Shulamite girl who is so obviously in love, she actually says some pretty profound things. And one of those emphatic statements, it's delivered to the daughters of Jerusalem three different times. Three times in this one little book of eight chapters, chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 5, and then this one, chapter 8, verse 4. Three times she says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you stir not up nor awake my love until he please. What she's saying, if we pull that into modern vernacular, is don't stir up passions or awaken love until the time is ripe and you are ready. And that is good advice for all the unmarried daughters of Jerusalem and for everyone else, and this is the burden of pastor's heart tonight, and for everyone else who serves the Lord as a single adult. And there are many of those wonderful people in our church family, watching online and far beyond. One of the agonizing aspects of being in love but not yet married is this need to wait. You long for the day when your lives will be so intertwined that every aspect will be linked together somehow, including sexually. And that is not helped by the fact that we today live in a sex-saturated culture where our eyes and our minds are bombarded on all sides by the message that your sexuality is simply another appetite to be satisfied, like hunger or thirst. Nothing could be further from the truth. But in such a context as we face today, it's easy to imagine that you are, as a Pentecostal Christian, you are, as an apostolic believer, you're about the only one waiting for sex until you are married. And you feel sometimes, because of the world's messages, that somehow, some way, you are being cheated. Nothing could be further from the truth. Into this arena of tension and unfulfilled desire and awkwardness, the Song of Solomon just walks right in and speaks with calm and reassuring wisdom when it says to the young women of Jerusalem, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This caution is so important in the poem's portrayal of the beauty and power of love that it is repeated three times. The repetition is not because Song of Solomon has any reservations about the goodness of love and sex in its proper place within marriage. On the contrary, Song of Solomon actually depicts and praises this breathtaking intensity of a unique, lifelong, committed relationship between one man and one woman. It's what we might call a friendship on fire. It's beautiful and powerful. And as a pastor for a few decades now, can I just tell you that it's often those people that have weathered the storms of life, some of the setbacks and trials, some of the sicknesses and hurdles, and they've now arrived in older years. And you watch their relationship and you watch a life of service to each other and such a love that it's almost hard to imagine them apart. That's the kind of lifelong relationship that is so beautiful. I want to speak plainly, but not rudely tonight. I want to say to you, it is one thing to keep God's command to wait until marriage to have a physical, sexual relationship. That's wonderful. We teach that. We expect that of our young people. And we're so grateful that the vast majority of our kids and teens and young people, they believe that too. I am so very proud of them in this ungodly world that we live in. But I must say, 
in today's online virtual world, there is even more at stake. In fact, there has never been more at stake. Unfortunately, the distinction between the world and so-called Christianity is rapidly evaporating. The internet provides instant availability and the appearance of anonymity. And so pornography is one of the fastest growing addictions plaguing our society. I wish I could stand here tonight and with the good conscience of a pastor say, but thank God we don't have a problem in the church. But I cannot do that. A recent Barna survey revealed that there is essentially no statistical difference in pornography use between those who regularly attend church and those who don't. Please hear pastor tonight. Pornography is designed to accomplish only one thing, and that is sexual gratification outside of the marriage relationship. Pornography is designed for only one thing. It is designed to stir up and awaken passions, exactly opposite to the purity that we read about in Song of Solomon. This is the very activity that the Bible forbids when it commands us to abstain from fornication. Paul says it very plainly, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. The Greek word there is actually pornea. And you can tell where we get some English words like pornography. Abstain from anything designed to sexually stir up and awaken those passions. The Bible doesn't just tell us to abstain. Paul gets even more plain when he says to the Corinthians, you need to flee fornication. Don't stand there and declare to God and everybody else and yourself how strong you are and you can take it and you can be around it and it's no big deal. Don't do that. Run when you're faced with sexual temptation. Flee fornication. Why? Because every sin that a man doeth is without the body. It's outside his body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. He or she opens up appetites and passions that were never designed to be opened up. Parents, please, please, before God, please, keep an eye on your young people because it's all too easy for them to slip into an addiction and you're looking out for drugs and this could be worse for them than drugs or alcohol because it's so subtle and so addictive and it warps and twists their mind. Please, please, being a good parent is not just buying stuff. Being a good parent is not just providing a nice life. Being a good parent is often like being the guardian over somebody and everybody's trying to kill them. Sometimes that's how it feels to be a parent. This sex without persons that pornography offers is a dangerous dismissal of God's divine design for sex in the first place. God gave us this gift of sex to be expressed only within the intimacy and the holiness of marriage for a threefold purpose. Procreation, having children, recreation, mutual enjoyment between husband and wife, and identification, maybe the most important part, bonding physically, psychologically, and spiritually as one flesh. Please hear me. Pornography accomplishes absolutely none of God's purposes, and it can be empirically demonstrated by the evidence and the statistics that pornography serves as a diabolical gateway to many other sins. Now, I'll move on shortly, but I'm compelled tonight. This isn't where I intended to go. This is not a marriage series. This is not a sex series. This is a series about the beauty and the intimacy that exists between Christ and his church, but we're not being honest if we don't say that this book addresses the physical relationship as well. Pornography, in particular, 
is a virus. You talk about COVID-19. COVID-19 is not nearly as severe and serious as the virus of pornography because this is a soul virus. It kills, slaughters, snuffs out intimacy, dignity, reality, and spirituality. It snuffs out the soul of everyone it touches because pornography reduces humanity, men and women just like you and me. It reduces them to a commodity to be used, exactly what the devil has been doing since time began. And while a person may keep their porn addiction secret, they cannot keep it silent It colors their perception of the beautiful life partner that God gave them or wants to give them in the future. It assassinates their own character. It impacts every interaction they will ever have with the opposite sex and it annihilates their relationship with God. Pornography is soul poison. Now the devil doesn't have to embarrass you publicly all he has to do is ensnare you privately the devil knows it's not necessary to get you to sin by sleeping with somebody else as long as he can get you to sin all by yourself he loves to tempt you to sin with your body don't get me wrong but if he can't do that he's content to just get you to sin with your mind It doesn't have to be the physical act of sex as long as there's lust. Paul thundered in 1 Corinthians and he said, What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, apostolics, Pentecostals, Christians, believers, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit because they are both God's. I'm moving on just as quickly as I can. I know I'm making it awkward in this room tonight, but I will not apologize. Not when we are getting slaughtered out there. No. The, the flood of pornography being accessed online today is a spiritual epidemic. Forget COVID-19 for a moment. You should be really afraid of this epidemic. It is an unprecedented crisis in the history of the world and the church. Porn use is costing an entire generation of young Christians their joy and their peace. It is harming their concentration and their confidence before God. It is destroying their potential to have normal dating and marriage relationships and it is corroding their young souls with the acid of unrestrained lust as they willingly give themselves to this bondage. The cost of pornography on their future is enormous, but the cost of pornography on their faith could be eternal. For far too many people, pornography may be the tool of the devil that will cost them their salvation. That's why Peter, the day of Pentecost preacher, in his letter, he said this, Dearly beloved, I beseech you, I beg you, you are just strangers and pilgrims in this world. Don't get tied down here. Don't get ensnared here. Abstain from fleshly lusts. Why? Because they war against the soul. That's why. If there ever was a time when we need to pray, not for standards of purity, but for a spirit of purity to invade and empower the church, it is today. We can legislate all the rules that we want, but the real thing is if there's not a spirit of purity somewhere in there, rules aren't going to make any difference at all. 
Would you lift up your hand and over your family and especially if you've got teenagers at home, especially if you've got precious little kids at home, would you pray for a spirit of purity? And if you've messed up in this area, I address everybody here. I'm bold enough to do that and I address everybody watching online. If you've messed up in this area right now while I'm looking at you and talking to you, right now is the perfect time to say, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, cleanse me with your blood. Jesus, I turn my my back on that virus of pornography. I refuse to go back to that. Help me, Jesus, through the power of the Holy Ghost. I know that's awkward, but I need you to push a little bit in prayer here in the building because somebody at home may be relying on a connection in the Spirit right now, and you could provide that through prayer right now. I worship you, Jesus. Ah, help us, God. Help us, God. Help us, Jesus. In your name. In your name. Now, everything I just said to you, all of these are good reasons why the Song of Solomon, which is arguably the most intimate book in the Bible, and the most intimate book in the Bible it still strongly cautions us to confine all sexual expression to the marriage relationship. This book, the most intimate book in the Bible says, refuse to stir up passions or awaken love until the time is ripe and you are ready. Now the way in which this little poem persuades us to wait for marriage is striking. Too often, Christians focus only on the rules that the Bible gives us about sexuality, the thou shalt nots. And there's certainly biblical wisdom behind any rule God ever gives you. But the Song of Solomon adds something to the rules that is profound and beautiful. It adds reasons. See, rules are like walls and fences. They can mark out where the boundaries should be. But walls and fences are of limited help because they can't keep you in your place if you keep tunneling under them or jumping over them or breaking them down. It is much more likely that we will stay on the proper side of the wall until marriage if we have a reason rather than just a rule. It is much more likely that we will stay on the proper side of the internet if we have a reason buried in our heart, not just a rule. And that's exactly why Song of Solomon compares waiting for marriage, compares true biblical intimacy to guarding a beautiful, valuable vineyard. I direct your attention to one scripture that I'd like to kind of hang on tonight in chapter 2, verse 15. Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. Now, it might seem strange to you that in the middle of a romantic conversation, we are suddenly reading about a fox hunt. But Solomon's readers knew that foxes were destructive animals that could destroy valuable vineyards. Jesus himself called King Herod that fox as a rebuke to his cunning and crafty nature. Now, foxes are mostly meat eaters, mice and rabbits and birds, but they also eat fruit and especially grapes. In the early spring in Israel... Foxes would bite off the new shoots and chew away at the roots of the vines. So those who tended vineyards in Israel, they constantly had to catch them and kill them off. So you could say it this way, there was unending warfare carried on against foxes in Bible times. But Pastor Raymond, these are just little foxes after all. A little fox doesn't really seem to be all that threatening or dangerous. Foxes are small animals in general. In the Middle East, they only grow to about 20 inches long. And in the Middle East, most foxes weigh only about 10 pounds or under. 
Even though they're quick, they're not strong, not like a coyote. They're not dangerous like a bear. A, a fox can't be compared to a big animal like a, a bull elephant in Africa that can trample your whole vineyard in an hour. No, foxes are just little animals, and yet they are capable of doing terrible damage. They can burrow and chew in a vineyard until the vines wither and become unproductive. And this is what Song of Solomon is talking about. For Solomon and the Shulamite girl, the vineyard of their relationship is in bloom. It is fragrant. It is growing. It is preparing to bear fruit. But if the foxes, if the little things are not removed, if the little things are not dealt with, if the little things are not reversed, then their relationship can be irreparably damaged. Anybody that's been married more than a week knows that's true. The little things are what catch up with you. The little things are what provide an unending source of irritation and argument. The little things are what will get you if you don't get them first. Now the farmer who invests his time in protecting that vineyard, he won't regret it. Even though it may be years, certainly a full growing season before he sees the benefit of his perseverance. The benefit of his tedious toil might not be reaped until much later. Let me be plain again. When it comes to tending your intimate vineyard, it's not just about physical, sexual intercourse. It's about protecting your mind, brothers and sisters, from habitual lust. It's about protecting your mind from romantic fantasy and pornography, all of which can have long-term damaging effects. See, you can have a vineyard and technically the walls are still there. Technically, the walls are still intact, but the blossoms have been trampled into the dirt in other ways because you've allowed too many things in there that shouldn't be there. Now, guarding your vineyard is not an end in itself. Rather, the purpose is to be able at the end of the season, at the end of the harvest, at the end of the process, to be able to pre present the fruit of your vineyard to your lover in full bloom so that you can both enjoy the fruit of that vineyard without regret or remorse. Again, I'm not trying to uh, create some kind of X-rated Bible study series here, but the intensity of that waiting makes that final consummation all the more beautiful and glorious. God designed this for a reason because when you're true to each other before marriage, it's like the glue that sticks you together, that intimacy that you share. But please hear me. And I want to speak directly to single adults who serve Jesus tonight. Not every farmer who tends their vineyard faithfully and carefully, speaking in this figurative sense, they're not all going to enjoy the fruit of marriage. Some of them will remain single for a lifetime, which in the world's mind begs this question. Why would you continue to guard your vineyard? Why would you stay pure? Why would you keep yourself when you don't see any way forward to a biblical sexual relationship with someone else? Isn't that just wasted effort? And God's answer would be not at all. You see, God could do a couple of things. He could surprise you with an unexpected relationship. There's lots of people who have been single for many years who finally meet somebody, a godly spouse, and they are so thrilled. Remember, we do serve a God who we say that he can do far more than we can ask or even imagine. So I wouldn't write that off. But there's a second, far more important reason that we choose to guard our vineyard. It's far more important. 
whether or not you ever get married, whether or not you ever find a spouse, whether you ever find a legitimate outlet, biblically speaking, for those God-given desires, please hear me. Song of Solomon was placed in your Bible just to remind you of this. There is a greater lover than the one you might be physically married to. There is a greater lover of your soul that we are waiting for, that we keep ourselves holy for. There is a God who desires you so passionately that he moves heaven and earth just to have a relationship with you. The powerful passions that God gave to man and woman that come together in a marriage relationship, please listen, they are only a pale, pitiful reflection of the passion God feels as he desires and pursues his people. He's the real lover you're keeping yourself for. Now, if your friendships and your family if your marriage can be damaged by little foxes, how much more do you think your relationship with God can suffer when you fail to guard it from the little things that threaten it? I know we're all on the lookout for big things. We're on the lookout for heresy and false doctrine. We're on the lookout for rank immorality and we're on the lookout for all kinds of scandalous sins. But do you know that your relationship with God can be damaged by little foxes when you fail to guard it from the little things that can threaten it? A little lie. A little jealousy. A little laziness. A little selfishness. A little worldliness. Just a little bitterness. Just a little anger, just a little disobedience, just a little prayerlessness, just a little busyness, just a little unforgiveness, just a little sin. But little foxes are still real foxes. And brothers and sisters, little sins are still real sins. In fact, they might be even more dangerous than big sins precisely because they are just little sins. If it's just a little sin, then you think you can handle it. It doesn't trouble your conscience. You can still come to church without feeling any conviction because it's just a little sin. People think that you're doing okay. And you don't appear any different on the outside. You don't interact any differently with the other people of God, at least not yet. And you can always find, I wrote this in my notes so I could say it precisely the way I wanted to. You can always find some sympathetic simpleton to tell you that your attitude is justified and your actions are no big deal. Those people are a dime a dozen and they are not your friends. You want a friend that if you're sliding spiritually, they will look you flat in the face and say, you're backsliding, buddy. You need to go pray. You need somebody that's a friend enough to you to say, you need to get yourself in church you need a friend that says to you, I'm worried about you because I've noticed your attitude is a little negative about the church or the pastors or the people of God or the, 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 the beautiful truths of the word of God or, or you're sliding, you're, you're getting a lousy attitude about God's precious commandments. Thank God for friends like that that love us enough to tell us the truth. Because there's always somebody lurking around the shadows of your life that they're in so much trouble spiritually that they would love for you to slide off the edge with them into the world. There's a problem with sliding off that edge. Jesus is coming soon. The rapture's gonna happen soon. And I don't wanna be sliding off the edge into the pseudo-Christian junk of the world. I wanna be on fire living for God with every fiber of my being. You can always tell yourself, 
Well, my attitude is justified and my actions are no big deal. But see, little sins always lead to bigger sins. And that's exactly why little foxes are so very sinister. The writer of Hebrews said, look diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness... You can't even see it yet. It's down there in the ground of your life. It's down there in the soil of your heart. It's buried in your spirit. A little root of bitterness. Beware lest it spring up and trouble you. And the problem is that thereby many can be defiled. We're a body, brothers and sisters. If you hurt, we hurt. If you rejoice, we rejoice. If you're laughing this week because of the blessing of God, we're going to rejoice and joy right along with you. If you're weeping this week because of a loss, we're going to put our arm around you and express our sympathy because we're family. But please hear me. If you sin, that sin can affect everybody else, just like the sin of Achan affected the children of Israel. If you backslide, that hurts us all. If you lose out with God, we lose something when one person loses out with God. So the Song of Solomon says, you need to be careful. You need to go capture those little foxes that spoil the vine because we're growing a vineyard here. And we want to produce much fruit for the Lord. James said it this way. He said, even so your tongue is a little member. We're not allowed to do this or I'd get you to stick out your tongue and grab it. Hold on to it during this part. But you could give yourself germs. And, and, and for the last 11 months, germs have been fatal to the human race. Before that, we, we, we thought, feed your kids some dirt because it'll help their immune system. But now, no, no, not a single germ. James chapter 3, verse 5. Some of you got more out of that than you have out of the last 30 minutes. James said, even so, your tongue is a little member. Everybody say little. It's like a little fox that chews on those vines. Your tongue is a little member, but it boasts great things. Here's the problem with little. Here's the problem with your little tongue. Here's the problem with your little sin. Here's the problem with a little fox. Behold how great a matter just a little fire kindleth. One little spark in a forest can be gone over a matter of days. And Paul used another illustration in Galatians. He said just a little yeast, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. It doesn't take much. So you've got to be on guard. So I'm preaching in two directions tonight, and you know it. One's, one's okay, and one's kind of awkward. But they both are tied together in Song of Solomon. You've got to protect your mind from the little things. Tim Gaddy calls these, our wonderful pastor in Cabot, Arkansas, uh, he, he calls these carnal curiosities that you're just minding your own business online and you can follow one link too many in one direction too many and you can be looking at something that you had not to be looking at. Carnal curiosities. And so you've got to set a guard over your mind and over your heart. And, and, and I know the world thinks that's, oh, that's just so immature and that's so childish and not when you're guarding your soul not when you're preserving your intimacy with your heavenly lover, the Lord Jesus Christ. No price is too great to pay for that. A Song of Solomon isn't the only place in the Word of God where we see a song about guarding a beautiful vineyard. In fact, the prophet Isaiah sang a song about the Lord who took perfect care of his vineyard. And the Bible tells us in Isaiah 5, that's where this other song is, that the Lord dug it and cleared it of stones and fertilized it and he built a wall around it and he built a watchtower in the middle of this vineyard to guard against foxes and, and other intruders. But when a harvest came in the Lord's vineyard, he found only a few sour and bitter grapes on the vines. Isaiah was describing the relationship between Jehovah and Israel, obviously. But he could just as easily 
have been describing the relationship between Jesus and me or Jesus and you. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the midst of it. And he made a wine press therein. And he looked. All he wanted was that it should bring forth grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes, sour grapes, grapes that were inedible. The Lord has taken such good care of his church. He has given us such abundant gifts. But saints, if we let little foxes ruin the vines, the only fruit we bear is wild and sour grapes. Far too many Christians allow the fence to be broken down. Far too many Christians allow the little foxes to run wild, turning their whole life, their whole vineyard into one muddy mess. Any normal landowner would call in the police to arrest such tenants in a vineyard. And that's exactly what the Lord said he would do if they didn't repent. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. Here's God's question. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I haven't done? What else would you expect me to do? What other blessing would you expect me to give? What other promise would you expect me to fulfill to you? I've done everything for you. Why, when I just looked that it would bring forth grapes, why would a vineyard that I've invested so much time in, so much effort in, why would it bring forth only wild grapes? And the Lord here in Isaiah's song says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'll take away the hedge and that whole vineyard will be eaten up by the foxes and every other predator. I'll break down the wall and it'll be trodden down. I'll lay it waste. It won't be pruned. It won't be valuable. It won't be digged. It'll just be briars and thorns that come up. And I'll even command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. God is serious about this thing called fruitfulness. But his attitude is not one of hatred or spite. His attitude is one of shock and sadness. I invested so much in this vineyard. Why after I gave all of that, why after I did all of that, was there not some kind of return? Was there not some kind of reciprocal relationship here? Why didn't I see fruit out of my vineyard? You know, we have a pretty impressive vineyard here. And no, I'm not talking about the building we're gathered in. We have in this vineyard the fence of his word that guards us and guides us. We have the tower in the middle of the vineyard. The name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and are safe. He's gathered out the stones out of this vineyard. Do you realize that Jesus, he came into your life and he took out all the sins and all the bondage and all the addiction and he allowed you to be free and clean of your past. He's tended, he's cared for this vineyard. And after he's done all of that, his only question is, are you going to do anything with that? Is your life going to be fruitful for my kingdom after I've done all of this for you? We don't just guard our vineyards for the sake of an earthly harvest. Brothers and sisters, there is a heavenly harvest coming. I spoke specifically to our wonderful single adults, and I hope that wasn't too horribly awkward for anybody, but I really felt you on my heart when I was studying for this message. But this is not just about an earthly harvest. This is about preparing our lives for a heavenly harvest. On that final day, you talk about harvest. We will once again taste the fruit of the tree of life that humanity has not tasted since the Garden of Eden. Our waiting will come to an end. 
and all your unfulfilled dreams and all your dashed hopes and all your disappointments and all your heartaches and your hurts and all your hang-ups, they will all come to a screeching halt in one instant. It's called the rapture of the church. And that's what we're headed for. That day, the bridegroom will return to claim his bride. And I just want to tell you, on the authority of the word of God, it's going to be worth everything you ever had to go through to get there. It's going to be worth, well worth, everything you ever had to give up or lay down or leave behind to get there. On that final day when the bridegroom returns and the bride is caught up for that heavenly wedding, you talk about a celebration. And I'll end with this. Song of Solomon chapter 2 two and verse 13. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grape, they give a good smell. This isn't a neglected vineyard. This isn't a vineyard where the little foxes have come in and wreaked havoc. This is a vineyard where tender grapes give a good smell. And the image here is of the bridegroom saying, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. With the Shulamite girl and Solomon, it will just be her leaving the garden, the vineyard, and going to his beautiful palace in the city of Jerusalem. But with us, it's far greater. It will be leaving this earthly vineyard where we've been through so many cycles of planting and sowing and reaping and weeping and harvesting and laboring on that day that will all be over in an instant when the bridegroom says arise my love my fair one and come away Paul said in a moment in the twinkling of an eye Would you lift up your hands as we prepare to close Bible study tonight? I, I pray that something has ministered to you, and especially if you're one of our single adults, I pray that something that I had the privilege of saying tonight, that it ministered to you and that it helped you and strengthened you. But everybody, would you lift up your hands and would you lift up your voice in this room right now? <laughs> Jesus is going to come back and it'll be worth every sacrifice you ever made. It'll be worth every tear you ever cried. It'll be worth everything you ever left behind and the world thought you were insane for giving that up to serve God. But you did. And on that day, it's going to be worth it all. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I love you, God. I worship you. It will.